Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are talking about Excalibur number 94, Days of Future Tense, yet another play on the words and emotions associated with a certain storyline called Days of Future Past. Will we like this one as much as the last one? It might depend on our mileage on the made-over tangerine. Excalibur number 94 was originally published in February 1996, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing. We've already got tangerine opinions entering the introduction of the podcast. This is going to go great. And the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Casey Jones on pencils, Tom Simons on inks, Ariane Lenshock and Malibu Hughes on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. Welcome back to the podcast that's talked about Days of Future Past many times already, despite the fact that that storyline is beyond the official purview of our podcast, but we'll certainly find some new lenses to help us make it make sense today. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a sometimes teacher, all the time writer, frequent podcaster, with a particular fondness for talking sexy subjects like the representation of gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture. Besides listening to me here every week, you can find me over at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where we should be in the midst of a series of threads about Kate Beaton's much-celebrated autobiographical graphic novel, Ducks. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I can confidently say that I liked The Last Days of Future Past riff better because he wasn't dead in that one. But anyway, moving on. Mav, what are your past or future attentions today? In the year 2000. <laughs> in the year Wait. 2000. <laughs> That's what I thought of the entire time I was reading this. Is like, <laughs> It's actually far not the year 2000. Future. Yeah, it's the far flung future, the year 2013. That's the general vibe that I have for this entire story. And if that gives you a precursor of what I thought of it, um, we'll get to it, I guess. But beyond that, I, I don't really have a snappy joke beyond that because I'm in the midst of like, it, it's finals week. So I'm just like in grading hell of... I've got 120 some papers per grade, so I'm like, it's it's a it's a lot it's a lot to do this week, and I'm very tired. Um, so I'm I'm really looking forward to to today's break. But beyond that, um, I don't know. My name is Christopher Maverick. But you can call me Mav. I'm the co-host of this show and another show called Vox Popcast, where I talk about pop culture stuff. Uh, I'm a 
teaching assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh, where I specialize in pop culture um, and cultural analysis and teaching and teaching digital media and pop culture stuff like movies and films and books to kids. And I, a lot of my work specializes in uh, like, yeah, it's like sex and gender. But for my case, usually with usually with teenagers and kid stuff. So, you know, this is, I guess, part of that. I, I guess that's what this book is. I don't know. <laughs> that's a question that I, I didn't propose, but we can certainly talk about <laughs> who is the audience for this book. That is actually that's a good question. Question. that's really pretty is. much i'm like that's where i was with it i'm like this is a sometimes we do this thing where i go well that was a comic not sure i can say that this time let's get through these intros and then we'll get to it <laughs> how about you andrew are all of your tenses in the past this week i'm in the same position as mav i, I have no sense of time right now all i have is a, a vague sense of how many papers i have left to mark mm -hmm, that's how, mm -hmm. I, how i live my life yep. Uh, I am Dr. Jay Andergrad. I am co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, and I am author of a Claremont-run book that you can pre-order now if you're interested Yay. about Yay. how Claremont subverts gender binaries in X-Men comics from the University of Texas Press, but it's also available on Amazons all around the world. Uh, and then um, just in, by way of introduction, I did want to say a very um, hearty congratulations to friend of the pod, Michael Hancock, who got married over the weekend. More of this, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we had a first time that I'd seen Andrew in a year in person, and first time I'd seen Michael since we used to do, of course, our podcast three panel contrast with Michael, and um, maybe has appeared on this podcast a time or two as well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but, um, I don't yeah, know what you're talking about. Yeah, me neither. But um, I was going to say, I'm allowed to acknowledge that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure He's how a, far that bit in extends. a long, long past, <laughs> far more than three weeks ago. Um, Michael Hancock had been on the show That's before. Right. Yes. Not yeah, three yeah. weeks ago. He has never hosted yeah. the show, but it, but, it, but at some point he was on. But um, yeah, I hadn't seen. We hadn't all the three of us been in person together since March 2020 when they were shutting down the university around us. Yeah, <laughs> so turn the lights on. That was so weird. Um, so yeah, three panel contrast reunion. That was a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, let's get to this week's guest and get talking about this comic, which we are clearly very eager to discuss. So we're joined on today's journey by a spectacular first time guest who I've been trying to talk into appearing on the pod for a while and I finally managed to break him down. The Yay. pod is delighted to welcome Dr. <laughs> Drew Jeffries. Welcome, Drew. Thank you very much. I uh, I hope I survived the experience. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, I we... guarantee you'll survive the experience, but yeah. I mean, I guess knock on wood. <laughs> I, yeah, we don't have a death count. I mean, <laughs> on the show, as far as I know, all former, no guests have been harmed in the making of... <laughs> I was going for a Kitty Pride reference. That's that's a cover. That's a quote from a cover, right? Welcome to the X Men. Yes. Hope yes. you survived the experience. It absolutely is. Yes, I got that reference. Drew. All right. <laughs> I'll tell our listeners a little bit about you, Drew, and then we'll get into it. Doctor Drew Jeffries teaches in the English and Film Studies departments at Wilfrid Laurier University. He is the author of the book Comic Book Film Style: Cinema at Twenty Four Panels Per Second, and the editor of the book Hashtag #WWE Professional Wrestling in the Digital Age, for which I wrote a chapter about the television show Total Divas. He's recently published in Inks, the Journal of the Comic Study Society, has a forthcoming article about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. Ooh. He is also the co-editor with me 
of a forthcoming academic anthology called Small Screen Supers, Essays on Superhero Television. So thanks so much for being here, Drew. Because you are a first-time guest, we have to hit the highs at the start, meaning we need to talk about your comic book origin story. How and when did you first get hooked on comics? Tell us about it. Well, I mean, this is, uh, you mentioned how you've been trying to break me down, and part of <laughs> why I needed breaking down to appear on the pod is because of my terrible, what do you call it? The uh, imposter syndrome with respect to comic studies. Like I've always, I've been affiliated. I've been sort of, you know, I've always dipped my toe into the universe, right? With, you know, different things and comic book film style, but it's really always been more from the film side of things. And, and that's true going back all the way, really. Like I remember when I was a little kid, I, my mom had this framed for me a while back. I don't know where it is now, but it's somewhere. Uh, I wrote a letter to Spider-Man and uh, I don't know what I said, but based on what he wrote back and what we have framed and by the way, he, he spells his name S-P-I-D-Y, by the way. Spitty. No no E-Y <laughs> for Spider-Man. Uh, at least circa 1990, uh, writing back to a five-year-old kid. Uh, but apparently, all I did in this letter was plead for Spider-Man to make a movie about himself. Uh, so that's really always been my thing. I've always been into superheroes, but more specifically because I wanted to see them in live-action films. And comics sort of never did it for me, or I was never able to fully get into these universes, in part, I guess, because they're so dense, especially for a kid who doesn't really have control over, you know, being like, you go into a comic book store, you pick up a random issue of X-Men, and it's part of this dense, long, ongoing story that you can't make heads or tails of. And that's kind of part of that, you know, the, as my first Excalibur issue, uh, 94, reading for this podcast, uh, I, I relived all those feelings. <laughs> Yeah, of not understanding say, things. Great and, uh, issue for that. Great yeah. issue for that. Yeah. <laughs> but at least I had Days of Future Past under my belt, uh, which gave mm -hmm. me a little bit of little bit of a bearing. But I uh, I don't know who this tangerine person is that that popped up and that yeah. everyone's already talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I get it, man. You just want more live action pictures of Spider Man. I get it. <laughs> I mean, that's it's and it's true. Like they keep making them, but I want them. I I can't get enough well let's talk about that a little bit before we get started then like tell us a little bit about your research on superhero films i mean i mentioned your book uh comic book film style tell us a little bit about that like sort of what makes you want to study superhero films why do you think it's important that we talk about them sort of as a distinct corpus yeah i mean so in comic book film style i actually don't talk about superhero films all that much because the sort of the purview of that book is films that engage with the medium of comics on a stylistic level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And superhero films almost never do that. They're really in the business of attempting to transcend their source material, mm -hmm. right? This is something mm -hmm. that reviews often said about the Nolan Batman films, that they are able to transcend the medium of comic books to become something fully cinematic. And, you know, the obsession with treating superheroes in a realistic or verisimilitudinous way, this is something that, you know, at least dating back to 78 Superman has, you know, and with like, a bit of a sojourn away from that towards stylization in the 90s. But then in the 2000s with X-Men, we return in a big way to realism or verisimilitude as the sort of North Star of the genre in, in the live action sphere. So yeah, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to talk about superhero films in that book. I'm, you know, I talk about 
Hulk and the 66 Batman and things like that. But beyond that, it's, you know, it's non-superhero films. It's Sin City, it's 300, it's Creep Show, it's stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm doing some work now on superhero films more specifically. I won't talk about that too much just because it's in progress, but I also just finished teaching a course called the Superhero Film for the first time. Wilfred Laurier let me let me teach this at long last. And I mean, it was, it was A, it was a ton of fun, B, super helpful for thinking about my next book, and C, you know, actually kind of helpful for this podcast, because one of the main things, like the book, comic book film style is very formalist. It's very style analysis kind of stuff and not really engaging with content and culture and things like that. And more and more, I'm finding myself less interested with formalism for its own sake and more interested in how superhero movies speak to the culture and why we are continually interested in seeing these kinds of narratives on the screen, why they appeal to so many people beyond your superhero diehards, but now sort of are, you know, your your biggest blockbuster genre. And some of that stuff, I think we will have the opportunity to talk more about as we get into Excalibur 94. So maybe I I won't say too much more off the top and we can just get into it organically as we go. Yeah, I'm not sure how to approach that. I mean, I want to talk to you about Apocalypse stuff, which I know you have some thoughts about. Yeah, that's something that we got into towards the end of this course and that I've been thinking about a lot since I finished teaching it because this is going to be something I'm going to be writing about for sure. And not just apocalypses. I mean, apocalypses, but more generally the idea of existential risk, I think is really central to contemporary contemporary superhero stories uh, in particular. Like we, we think about the superhero genre in film really, you know, go back to comics. The superhero existed before World War II, but it was World War II that really catapulted superheroes into the ma- mainstream discourse in a bigger way where everybody was reading them. And that hasn't been true since then. But in the film world, it was 9-11 that did that. Again, superhero films existed before 9-11. You know, Spider-Man was mostly in the can when 9-11 happened. X Men mm-hmm. obviously came out well had to reshoot you know, it a, a year before <laughs> yeah they had to shoot some of it yeah uh, and they had to pull that trailer I actually have the poster that they recalled with the twin towers reflected in Spider Man's eyepiece yep. uh, one of my most prized possessions but that was a you know again so superhero films were popular but they were just nine eleven kicked it up a notch and seemed to make people's need for these stories stronger and as a culture we've definitely moved past nine eleven with respect to superhero films. And I think that the scholarship hasn't quite. Scholarship is Mm -hmm. still talking about 9-11 quite a bit in superhero films. And so what I'm trying to think through is how the films have moved past 9-11 and are thinking about different kinds of existential risks, like things like AI, things like climate Mm -hmm. catastrophe. And existential risk is not, again, it's nothing new to the genre because so much of 1950s and 60s superhero comics are all about nuclear anxiety Mm -hmm. and taking this nuclear anxiety and reframing it so it's not something that kills us, but something that makes us stronger. 
something that when exposed to, we become super powered. So I think we see that with superhero films now, where these existential risks, these things that are going to kill us, instead, they become the thing that powers the superhero. And yeah, I mean, these are all things I'm still thinking through. So they're inchoate to some extent. But I think certainly AI is something that we'll want to talk about with respect to Excalibur 94 and uh, how these kinds of techno-pocalypses come to pass. Yeah, yeah. Powerful theme for the 90s. I mean, I always think about superheroes as kind of responding to like mass death and sort of super scientific crises as the sort of fulcrum for negotiating that. Like they have these identifiable, mostly human bodies that can still contain these threats in part by replicating them and sort Mm -hmm. of owning them through that replication. So that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of like what you're saying of like these certain cultural moments that inspire sort of huge growth and change sort of in the superhero genre and like 9-11 obviously being a huge one just in terms of people's reconfiguration sort of mentally in North America about like what safety is you know what spaces you know mean when these kind of things can penetrate that space and that makes a lot of sense in terms of the superhero genre having a moment then but yeah I look forward to to hearing how your thoughts evolve on that but let's do an issue summary of this one because you brought up so many interesting things and I really want to get your thoughts on the issue in particular so let's do that so I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we definitely help you save your best leather were the apocalypse nigh just to prove how much we care about your sartorial splendor here's a very fashionable plot summary Excalibur number 94 opens with a dire establishing shot of the very cold, very far-flung future of 2013. X-Fans might recognize it as a version of the Days of Future Past reality in which most of the X-Men and a lot of other folks besides are dead at the fiery robotic fists of the Sentinels. The captions tell us that once the Sentinels conquered America, rounding up all mutants into concentration camps, they turned their attention to Europe and the British Isles, and only black air was prepared. And by prepared, we mean prepared to partner with the Sentinels to control Great Britain on the condition they help hunt down, imprison, and ultimately exterminate mutants. We're also treated to recaps of what happened to the members of Excalibur when the Sentinels took over. Important details include Doug Locke vanishes, Kitty and Peter Rasputin went back to the States and got married, Amanda Sefton is killed by Margarly Spardos, and Kurt dies holding Margali's hand for some reason. I want to talk about that. The rest oh, of the team decamped to. I, I was oh. waiting to. I, I see her note. I don't think. She, I think she's wrong too. But that's okay. Continue. Oh. I think it's mistake. Because they it says his mother's hand, and I yep. thought that they meant Margali. I was so confused by that. All right. I don't think it's better. I think, again. but I think it's mistake. <laughs> yeah, that's so confusing because Margali is in the same it, sentence. Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fix that because it's confusing. I actually don't. I'm not sure you should fix it because I'm not like, I think it is vague and, and ambiguous and we should talk about it in a bit. Because when you said it, when when you said it, I was like, oh, maybe it is. I think it's mystique, but I think there's an argument either way because of the way it's written. It's fine. Weird. I'll leave it. I'll leave it. But I think it probably means mystique because that would make a hell of a lot more sense. Anyway. Does it? Oh. <laughs> I, okay. Well, I, anyway, I'm going to yeah. get really caught up Moving on, on. this because I did overthink it a lot. <laughs> but anyway, let's move on. So the rest of the team decamps to the ruins beneath Braddock Manor, home to an intelligent mineral computer system. We catch up with a punkified Rain Sinclair, despondently watching video footage of atrocities occurring above ground. She's interrupted by Betsy Braddock and then our old friend Tangerine, who informs the other women that the Master wants to see them. Picking up Brian and Megan along the way, they arrive to meet the Master, none other than a wheelchair-bound Pete Wisdom, still smoking up a storm.
storm, but now it was escorted by Karma. Pete reveals that he knows where Douglock is, and so the team depart to find him. They break into the Black Air base holding Douglock, where they fend off techno-organic beasties disguised as Brood, then finally find Douglock. He's been disassembled and repurposed into the operating system of Blackwall, the heart of Black Air. Excalibur were fighting him the entire time. On the heels of this startling revelation, Brian Braddock wakes up. Was it just a dream, or a twisted memory of that far-flung future? So yeah, for Drew's sake, uh, Tangerine, we were last introduced to <laughs> in Excalibur 66 and 67 as this very fabulous disco telepath. She has a very different look here, and I think we're all saddened by the loss of her incredible disco look. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you don't really need to, well, I don't know, maybe yeah. some of us are not saddened, but you don't really need to know about Tangerine, but that's what we're talking yes. about. <laughs> it's not really important. <laughs> She's uh, one of those characters that has like three appearances. Anyway. And this is um, number three. Let's, yeah, this is number three. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's pick up your first impressions of the of the issue as a whole, Drew. You already brought up being pretty lost. I am not surprised because on the one hand, I was like, you can just drop into this issue. It's kind of self-contained. And then as I was rereading it, I was like, that was a lie. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, quite all right. I enjoyed it. I read it twice. I read it once a few days ago. And then after reading Days of Future Past again this morning i went back and read it again and i'm glad i did uh because now it's a little bit fresher in mind i have some notes uh oh, first impressions though like i mean i didn't hate reading it by any means i didn't know who most of the people were uh, yeah. so and That's i don't an have any context for it mm -hmm. um and certainly the all a dream conceit at the end I didn't know what to do with that. To the people that have read all of this stuff leading up to that, is it does it make more sense in context no. that this is all a dream or is no. this super this is lame? <laughs> this is a cop out? Okay, well, Brian did have this experience in the time stream where he saw all of these multiple futures and his brain got broken, but also we've forgotten that that happened, sort of. So it's mm -hmm. alluding to that. So there is some kind of context for it, but mostly it's just a conceit to tell this one-off story. Okay, I guess then that leads into my other question, my other sort of overarching question, which is like, what is the urgency of revisiting Days of Future Past None. like at this point in Excalibur's <laughs> run? None. None. <laughs> <laughs> like, like this is just out. like an interruption one-off kind of issue that mm -hmm. doesn't affect the ongoing story at all not even the slightest <laughs> yeah I, I was just trying to think of anything see because we used to have rachel summers as a central yeah. character in this book who is centrally tied to days of future as, past absolutely and mm -hmm. but she is not in this book anymore so the character that was centrally connected to that world is missing so yeah this just is not really relevant well, and and Ki and kitty pride as well right like yeah mm -hmm. kitty is is obviously central to days of future past and based on what i know about excalibur also excalibur but she's just <laughs> so like written off off panel at the beginning <laughs> of this because i guess she's otherwise occupied in days of future past right because she's in america there so for continuity reasons right. we can't have her here <laughs> although this this also does seem to take place after the events of days of future past because the sentinels have expanded overseas right is that why this is sort of billed as an alternative version of the alternative future <laughs> that days of future past gives us and I mean, not necessarily so. in earth 811 continuity it this is, is like nebulous <laughs> it is nebulous which continuity it takes place and you notice i didn't name an earth in the issue summary because i wasn't sure well but, but you referred to it as a version of the days of future mm -hmm. past reality if i'm not Mm -hmm. mistake, I was right? I was the hedging, Wikipedia I was does the same there. thing. 
I was hedging there because I didn't want somebody to like be like, it's not actually. And I was like, I know, I know. But the, the Wikipedia says the same thing, that this is an yeah. alternative version of the alternative version. Mm-hmm. That's right. So maybe it's 811B. Yeah. Uh, sure. I mean, I, mean I, like, I like the sort of central conceit of like, well, what was going on in Britain when all of this was happening? And that's sort of interesting to me. But anyway, I want to pick up some first impressions from, from the rest of you. Let me pick up your first impressions, Andrew. How are you feeling about this one? I, I'm kind of with Mav. It's a, it, it's a bit of a mess. Um, <laughs> I don't really like it. I think there's some good bits of writing and then some really bad bits of writing, which is weird because mm-hmm. Ellis is usually either one or the other. And I will point out one thing that I think is kind of important because we've been tracking it a lot. There is a central Excalibur character who is deeply tied to this timeline and he's not in this book and that would be rory campbell rory he is he's there he has he has a appearance he shows up for one panel yeah i didn't notice it till i reread it this morning he's in there for one panel who are we talking about rory what now yeah uh, yeah exactly because you don't know the book so okay so if you go to the page where you see the um where right after the sentinels um it's like page three okay so page three of the book okay so is he the one holding his fingers above moira's Head? Above Moira's head. Yes, that's Rory Campbell. It's the only time he appears in the entire book. He is absolutely pertinent to Days of yes. Future Past, at Did least as X of this place. Yes, at least as Excalibur sees it. He's a character that was injured like several issues ago, and then we forgot about him. Like they like we've not mentioned him. He's our least favorite character on the show, and he's in this book in that panel. <laughs> and that's it. And yeah, and if you and if you don't know who he is, you don't even notice it. So in the future that we've been shown previously of Days of Future Past, Rory Campbell is the villain Ahab, who is this guy who is responsible for, like, traumatizing Rachel and teaching her to be a mutant hound and all of this stuff. So he is very central to the entire reality of Days of Future Past. So it is strange that he doesn't appear in the version of that reality that we get here. Arguably the big bad. (laughs) Yeah. And yet. Yeah. Choices. Anyway, Andrew, did I, did we cut off your first impressions? If 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 so, no, please I think proceed. that's about it. It's, it's very messy, and I felt at the end like I was reading a choose your own adventure, and I had chosen wrong, and like I wanted <laughs> yeah, to yeah. a couple pages and make the other choice available to me, but no such thing. <gasps> This would be better as a choose-your-own-adventure. Oh, man. Well, I don't know. Mad, did you have more first impressions that you want to do before we get into uh, I mean, some more apocalypse it's, stuff? It's, I just, you say it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book. And I should just, I should just point out that my um, PDF that I'm working from here, for weird reasons, and this happens sometimes, there's a page that's out of order that I know because I've read the book and I know that so so I know that this page where where Pete Wisdom and Karma first show up I know where it's supposed to go it doesn't affect the reading of this issue at all the page is in the wrong place in my book and it doesn't matter because that's how I feel about this book (laughs) it's just like it is so random Drew was like oh maybe if I had better context I have all the context in the world I've (laughs) been I've been reading this on a podcast for the last 94 issues I've read all the entire run before, so I know what has happened. I know where it's going. I know where what happens over the next 31 odd issues. Doesn't matter. This is pointless. <laughs> this is confusing. <laughs> I don't know why this is there. I don't know who it's for. Like sometimes I make the joke, you know, choices were made. I don't feel like any choices were made. This is just some stuff is here. 
And I'm like, I don't know why any of what's here is here. And I have reasons for, to say that about every about everything that will come up in this <laughs> in this conversation where like literally every choice here just makes me go, okay. And that's how I feel. Like when you were talking about Tangerine looking different and everything, I, I don't hate it. I don't love it. I just go, but why? Like I'm like we're saying Tangerine, and I guarantee Drew is like, yeah, who is Tangerine and why does anybody care? And the answer is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who is why does anybody care? But by the same like, token, I also without context kind of feel that way about just about everybody in the book right like me too none of these none of these are characters <laughs> that i know like when psylocke's there yeah i know psylocke she doesn't usually look quite like that but yeah she's got the purple it, hair i know who that uh -huh. is captain britain yeah i know who that is uh -huh. <laughs> but pretty much everybody else i'm 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 reading this cold and that's that's what it is i i was cold by the end of it too was not feeling particularly enlightened by the end of it but there are some perhaps i, th I think andrew referred to bits of writing being yes. good or bad but like i feel like bits of writing is kind of just a good description of it because this is it, it it's full of bits of writing and it never really goes beyond bits of writing but yeah i mean if i had if i had to give my like two second synopsis review of it i'd be like well i think warren ellis really wanted to do this central gimmick of having pete wisdom in the wheelchair as the boss of everybody and that's what he was interested in and did a comic around that so that he could do that little gimmick which he was very <laughs> invested in because he teased it in like the previous issue where Pete was doing the impression of Charles Xavier and pretending he was in the wheelchair so he clearly was like into this idea and like that little reveal and you know it's a cute reveal I'm not that mad at it but at the same time like we've talked a lot about his dogged determination to put over Pete Wisdom and this seems like kind of more of the same it's like well we're gonna redo one of the iconic X-Men stories and put Pete Wisdom at the center of it which is just like I got to admire that courage you know That's a that is a swing yes <laughs> but anyway, I can't believe that by 2013 people are still talking about Pete Wisdom <laughs> hey he's back in a big way these days uh -huh. sure <laughs> anyway sorry you go ahead so Pete Wisdom is another one of those characters that I just had no frame of reference for whatsoever. And and then again, to the, the fact that the introduction of Pete Wisdom, that page is misplaced uh, in the PDF. So I just didn't see it. Like it's, it's at the end of the PDF instead of uh -huh. where, what, like it, what, it was only in this discussion like i assumed it was a tease for the next issue nope because of where it was oh placed in the pdf oh uh, so i couldn't place it in context it's only now in this discussion that i realize oh that was that sort of makes sense of uh who is it karma <laughs> the one that jumps into people's heads yeah. yeah yeah like that okay because because she was just suddenly there jumping uh -huh. into somebody's head but she she hadn't been in the scene previous so um oh now i'm getting realize that, that pdf got all screwed up my copy is normal yeah like, it's, well it's, it's okay the pieces are coming together now it, it's wow. not it's not really much better or worse i'm, I'm i assure you because i knew what was wrong and i'm like oh okay <laughs> it's uh just but it's a the lot same thing like when when rain becomes the wolf character uh -huh. like it's it's rain that becomes the wolf right that's right okay so the first time i read it i just completely missed that part of the panel where there was a wolf there um <laughs> and this time i was like oh yeah okay so she became uh, you know i was doing some closure here i was putting the the pieces together sequential art i was getting <laughs> okay now rain became this this wolf creature and i don't think she does anything as the wolf creature it's just like a one panel 
wolf appearance, but I at least was able to understand what was literally happening the second time I read it. Yeah, there's just, there's so many deep cut continuity things in this issue, which again does get back to the question of like, who is this issue for, right? Like, I had to, I had to ask my good friends over at ComicsXF when the revelation of Brian's father being from a parallel Earth came from, because I couldn't for the life of me remember. I remembered that Brian finds out during the Davis run of Excalibur because uh, Roma tells him, I believe, and he's like, what? And like, like, we haven't really returned to the implications of that in a big way, which is kind of odd. But um, yeah, that does happen in the Davis and Delano Captain Britain. My friend Zach Rabaroff knew that off the top of his head in two seconds. So thank you for that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's a lot of things like that, that like even doing this podcast, I'm just like, oh boy, like when did all of these things happen? And I like was like, oh, is this our tangerine? Oh yeah, it is. Because it says, you know, credit to Davis for some of these concepts and just... It's a lot. And here's the thing. I wasn't unintrigued by some of this stuff. I did feel like it did reward me in some ways as a longtime reader of this series in terms of, you know, prognosticating these alternate futures for this these characters. I actually didn't hate it on that level. I think I may be a bit hotter on this issue than actually the three of you are. But at the same time, that question of like, who the heck is this for? I do think is a pertinent question because who is the person that has all of this continuity at their fingertips that's going to be really enjoying all of these super deep cuts to like Marvel UK comics that they didn't have access to? So it's like it's a lot i don't know except remember like the main thing here marvel uk comics the tangerine didn't actually appear in right like <laughs> it's about weird deep cut continuity so let's talk about the tangerineness of it all like you clearly from your recap didn't like the revamp of the tangerine character and here's my thing i like the old tangerine design i actually kind of like this I, this design too and if they called her siren it would have worked better because that's who they drew they drew siren and uh, yeah. and i'm like that's fine like the design's fine for a like i actually like the art style here so the, the the design is fine for a future version of a 90s character i buy that i don't know who this is like who was sitting around waiting for tangerine to re to return because if that that person exists then they're like what happened to the fro like that's like there's no there is yeah. no person who is excited to see this character for three pages again but was you know itching for the return of a character and a massive redesign to her entire look feel manner of speaking you know like why it's just a name it's tangerine is just a name here which is why i was saying when drew was like oh maybe if i had context and i'm like no context is irrelevant here because that is a character that either you don't know at all or you know and you're like i don't recognize this appearance this is fundamentally different than the last time we saw her well and i mean and it's just the diminishing returns on this too we talked about mm -hmm. this issue already like the last time we revisit revisited this world but excalibur 67 sets it up that they fixed it <laughs> you know mm -hmm. that's the huge hero triumph of the last alan davis issue of excalibur so every time we keep going back to this world and again this is an alternate version of the alternate version so whatever but at the same time like we're incorporating tangerine from that story and this is a different tangerine and i get it but it's still like i don't know that's an issue where i do like some of the ways that this story deals with the futures of these characters i do think the doug Lock reveal is interesting i do think the pete reveal is interesting There's 
there's a lot of sort of background weirdness going on with Pete here and his relationship with Karma that I had questions about, but I was also a little bit intrigued by. Those things I like, but then you're picking parts of the continuity and then chucking other parts in a way that makes none of it make sense. And then that gets frustrating because on the one hand, the thing that I would say in its favor is that it's rewarding longtime readers, but then the thing that I would also criticize is that it's punishing longtime readers by making it not make sense. So it's like, oh, I mean, that's classic superhero comics, though, I suppose. So, I mean, what am I really complaining about? I don't know. It's, I mean, so even looking through, though, right, like there's a redesign of the characters who appear in this book are characters that you probably don't care about because if you cared about them, they would have been in one of the other many times that we've seen the Days of Future Past world, right? Like, like that's what they're doing. So they're like, I think Ellis has gone, oh, I can use Rain. I guess I can use Karma? Doug Lock, nobody's looking for Doug Lock. I can use Doug Lock and Tangerine. She's no one's ever gonna mention her again. So I got her. And then it's just like, oh wow, Psylocke's available, right? Like that's <laughs> like it feels like that's the uh thought that was put into it. And then, you know, the design of like I find the design of Psylocke interesting because I cannot decide whether or not Casey Jones, the the penciler, has decided to de-Asian her or not. Mm. Like I, I think that's what's going on. Or maybe he's just not drawing her as stereotypical, but she has a much more British Psylocke look about her than the Asian Psylocke. Her eyes are drawn less comic booky Asian-y than Karma's eyes are in the same book. So like I feel like he's going for oh and at some point in the intervening 20 years or 15 years Betsy Braddock returns to her own body which is an interesting take I feel like he's trying to go and Megan stop being defined like the two things that define Megan most are her long hair and the fact that she doesn't wear shoes so she's got short hair now and she's got boots on that's interesting, I guess. Rain is, you know, she's got like a punk look, you know. Look, Rain has shaved her head. That's neat. And it's just kind of all of the, here are some random things to show that these characters have progressed, except for they're characters who have progressed into stuff that I don't recognize. So why do I care about their future, especially since it's all a dream at the end? You know, people have these like punky haircuts in the apocalypse future because, you know, you're living underground and presumably taking care of your hair as a pain. And yet, like Betsy and Tangerine... <laughs> have like the most beautiful voluminous hair and I'm like I guess they're just using all of the shampoo and conditioner and water budget for the team but like Megan had to cut her hair even though she's a shapeshifter and that wouldn't matter <laughs> but whatever <laughs> I'm overthinking this to a degree that it does not deserve <laughs> let's talk more about apocalypse stuff because I know Drew you have thoughts about it I mean like why do we like putting superheroes in these kind of end of the world scenarios I mean we got into it a little bit before the issue summary but let's unpack it a little bit more i mean what's your take on it why do we like putting superheroes in these kind of situations I th yeah i think more than ever now i think we we feel drawn to these kinds of stories like with it's an often a complaint that you hear in like uh reviews about superhero movies that like the stakes are always too high it's always not it's like the end of the world the end of the universe the end of the multiverse like it's never just like a small scale kind of personal stakes kind of story and i just feel like for today's viewers anything less than the end of the world is like small potatoes because like yeah. the end of the world is what we're kind of being confronted with all day every day and one of the big things with existential risk and living in an era defined by 
a proliferation of existential risks, not just nuclear anxieties, which, you know, still is ever present, but it's not something that the kids today are, are that worried about. But things like AI, things like climate change, to say nothing of natural existential risks like a meteor hitting the earth, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, the thing about existential risk, I've been reading this book by Toby Ord, a philosopher called The Precipice, about existential risk. And he crunches all the numbers and he figures out the probabilities of all these things to the best of anyone's ability, as far as I can tell. And one of the things that he says that has sort of haunted me ever since I've read it is that like human beings tend to learn by trial and error, like trying, failing, learning something, trying again. But the thing about existential risk is that when it happens, you have to get it right the first time, because if you don't, it's annihilation. It's extinction. Like with an extinction level risk, if you fail, it's game over. And one of the things that we talked about 9-11 a little bit earlier, one of the obsessions in superhero films for the 10, 15 years after 9-11 was replaying 9-11 in the same way that American action films in the 80s we're all about replaying the war in Vietnam, Vietnam mm -hmm. but yeah. America gets to win this time. So it's like in superhero films, it's 9-11, but we get to prevent it this time or we get we get to avenge it this time. And I think what we're doing in contemporary superhero films is existential risk, but we fail and then we get to try again and we get to succeed this time. So a movie like Eternals is like climate change, but we get to try again. Age of Ultron is is AI sort of becoming unaligned, but we get to try again. And, you know, Avengers Endgame, like, we get to try 9-11 again, again, uh, hmm. going back to the first Avengers movie. Mm -hmm. And Days of Future Past is one of those stories. It's a story where we're in this dystopian future because of very sort of recognizable, prescient political reasons that align in really troubling ways with things that like senators, congressmen are saying right now like there was a an american politician that referenced oh, x-men in relation yes. to trans people like oh, last yeah. week mm -hmm. so like talk about and senator kelly like <laughs> this is wild stuff that is completely relevant to what we're happen what is happening right now and days of future past shows like we go into that we go down that dystopian path and then we can go back and reverse it. And I think because we are, as a society, as a collective, slowly going down the wrong path, knowing we're going down the wrong path, but not just not reversing, and I'm talking kind of about climate change and AI quite specifically here, not just not reversing, but accelerating, going faster down the wrong path, all the while we know what we're doing. Like, I think we we want these stories of a second chance because that's what we want so badly. We want a second chance because we know we're messing it up in real time, but individuals that recognize that are powerless to stop it. And superhero movies are all about the individuals that are not powerless to stop it. These are stories of individuals that have agency and have power to affect the kinds of changes that we wish we could make. Oh, that's a really, I totally agree with that take on it. I mean, I often think about superheroes and apocalypse stories in the context of, you know, the original Fantastic Four Galactus saga and, mm -hmm. you know, the existential dread there of like, this is the villain that the superheroes can't defeat, right? This threat that, you know, makes them feel like ants and this is this important sort of <laughs> moment of growth for this genre that there's this threat that they can't defeat. But of course they do end up defeating him in a sense, right? So yeah, that's so, it makes me think a lot about the 
revisiting and the revisiting of this particular storyline too, yeah. right? Like, why do we keep revisiting this one and wanting to mm -hmm. redo Days of Future Past, right? Well, and I think one of the things that's interesting about, like, this is, because Days of Future Past is what, 1980? I think so. I don't have an Andrew question. <laughs> I think it's 80, 81, something like that. Something like that, 80. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so now we're, what, 16 years later, and they're adding these little details, like bits about AI, like the Sentinels are sort of, I, I really like the way an early panel describes the Sentinels. They fulfilled their terrible programming to the extremes that only machines are capable of, which is this really kind of nice bit of writing describing sort of misaligned AI. When we designed this artificial intelligence to execute a specific set of programming, and then it does execute that specific bit of programming, but not in a sort of thoughtful way with pro-social ends, like the, the famous sort of paperclip thought experiment that you design an AI that is programmed to make paperclips and it continually optimizes itself and ultimately colonizes the entire universe, annihilating all life in order to create paperclips. So when we have these kinds of AIs, you have to be extremely careful about how you are designing them so that you can make sure that their programming is aligned with what humans want it to do. And, you know, if you want it to exterminate mutants, then it will do that and it will continue to do that. And that's kind of what we what we see here. I also like how the the issue in terms of, again, like the X-Men have always been playing around with concentration camp imagery mm -hmm. and like we actually see a lynching in one panel here. Yeah. Um, mass graves like like, you know, X-Men stories are rarely shy about the Holocaust allegory. Uh, but certainly nowhere less shy than in stories like this. And I liked the way that it took the sort of what we might call the like old styles of discrimination and bigotry that we associate with lynching and the Holocaust and mass graves and put new styles like digital surveillance, omnipresent digital panopticon kind of stuff. The idea that these, these digital creatures would track you by your shed genetic materials, you, the skin cells that you leave behind your dna this is 1996 like this is before gattaca even came out the sci-fi film mm -hmm. so i feel like that's pretty prescient stuff that speaks to us pretty well today you know what more than 25 years later is that right with you know self-tracking and all of the sort of the ways that we let our digital devices track our heart rates and things like that and how all that material can be used to persecute us the way there's fears about like period trackers now potentially being that data of. being co-opted and used by mm -hmm. governments that want to criminalize abortions. So the stuff that is in this issue, you know, around the margins is really interesting, really prescient and still works today, I think still speaks yeah, to us today and the things we're worried about in terms of the path that we are on towards dystopia. Mm -hmm. I have said this before. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but one of the things that has made me so depressed about politics for i mean politics have always been bad but i mean like <laughs> in, in, during the trump era let's say sort of the acceleration of certain rhetorics during that era um i'm just like stuff is too much like a comic book in a way that's depressing okay. it shouldn't be this yeah stupid. <laughs> so that goes to the to the thing drew just drew just yeah. referenced the guy's name is webster jeffries he's the um mm -hmm. he is the florida uh no relation just let yes. me make that clear no relation <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't even. Oh, actually, that's wrong. It's Webster Barney Barnaby. I don't know why that. Okay. Yeah. So I, um, yeah. I, I double checked it. It's like, yeah, Webster Barnaby. He is the Florida state representative who did the thing that Drew is just talking about, where he related trans people and vaguely, he wasn't clear about it, but he vaguely seemed to also be talking about just queer people in general, not just trans, but definitely trans people to the X-Men and made references that clearly imply someone had shown him, if not God loves man kills itself, at least Days of Future Past or the X-Men film movies. And he was essentially associating the X-Men as the bad guys in the movies called X-Men. Like he, he, he's clearly, he, he complains about like, and then the X-Men where they have those imps and demons running around and, you know, we've got to save humanity from them. And I'm like, why are you quoting Stryker? Do you not get that book <laughs> but like and he goes off at, at length at it and i think that this is sort of the problem i want to wrap this back to the post-apocalyptic thinking right like i i would push back a little bit when you said that we are sort of past 9 11 i don't think we are because i think the problem is america especially but western storytelling in general definitely in comics likes to have punchable enemies we yes. struggle when we don't have a punchable enemy the reason we can do world war ii allegories until the Vietnam kicks into high gear is because it's really easy to say, and then we're going to punch the 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 Japanese or punch the Germans, and then we can go, and now it's the Viet Cong. And vaguely the Russians, because that war was cold, but like, you know, even like all the Rambo movies are, no matter what we're worried about, at least we can always go, you know, go back to Vietnam, go to Russia, and we can always punch somebody. It's always about, like you said, refighting Vietnam, because this time we can win. And I think that we're still, I, I think that we don't know how to win against AI and we don't know how to win against climate change. So we can pretend that we can win against AI and climate change by winning 9-11 instead, right? Like that's what, like I, I agree with you that that Age of Ultron is really about the fear and anxieties about uh, about AI, but it's very framed in Patriot Act rhetoric, yeah, <laughs> right? No. Like, it's very framed in a let's make this 9-11-ish because 9-11, you know, they drop 9-11 is like, hey, what if there's a, a an event that destroys a city like they're they're turning an amorphous conceptual ideological villain into something that we can send Tony Stark to go punch. And that's what we that's like just sort of how we conceive of stories. So I feel like like maybe this story is there's a lot of anxieties that that Ellis wants to address, but it's just like a whole pot of them. And OK, what we'll do is we'll go back to that that day's future past. Well, because that's the well we use to discuss all these anxieties. And there's a lot of them. And then like basically he has no solution. So Brian just wakes up in bed feeling bad about everything because there is no solution to these problems. Like, how do you? punch an unpunchable problem well you make it a sentinel and yeah, <laughs> yeah you, give, you, you give it a body you give it yeah. a physical body that you can punch and that's and i think that's kind of what it's trying to do well and maybe let's go back to this doug Locke character that i i don't know who this is um but at mm -hmm. the end of the at the end of this issue we encounter they've been looking for doug Locke, and doug Locke is revealed to be essentially a disembodied head sort of in the middle of this spider web constructed of techno organic thread and that's kind of like i gather from 
guess that Doug Locke was a corporeal sort of techno-organic being that has become disembodied and thereby unpunchable and thereby undefeatable in this mm. context. Like he's yeah, become the operating it. system, right? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And 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 from that <laughs> you point. You don't need to know his whole history. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> but at that point, we don't have a punchable bad guy. We have yeah. this disembodied yeah. bad guy. So there's nowhere for the story to go but wake up brian it was all the dream well that that leads actually very directly into something i wanted to ask andrew because i wanted to ask you andrew about your take on why we keep revisiting days of future past and like whether there's something to be gained by keeping revisiting this because it does occur to me as we're saying that that you know this is a case of revisiting it where a solution to the problem is not considered viable. I mean, this is just a complete subversion of the utopian hopefulness of Excalibur 67. And yeah, mm -hmm. I just wondered if you had thoughts about sort of our, our revisiting of Days of Future Past. I mean, is it interesting to talk about these revisionings of it? as a corpus like i mean do they say different things about what that story means at different times in the history of this franchise or even just culturally yeah i think i don't tend to think of it as a corpus because i i do think it's more of a tool used for okay. um, an ongoing story arc in order to create a trajectory um in order mm -hmm. to build tension dramatic irony and that kind of stuff uh, and it worked really well for x-men i would argue days of future past um creates a lot of the ongoing tension after burn lee Eves, actually just just knowing where that's kind of going rachel shows up all that kind of stuff i think maybe what they're trying to do here is to give excalibur a greater sense of gravitas by creating a sense of the dark future that's going to take place unless britannic and the team can sort of figure it out and get their stuff together what i find very interesting about ellis's iteration though is the britishness of it all and how his version is george orwell he's going to give you the bleakest ending in which the heroes lose I like that. I, like, like, I feel it does betray what Davis was doing, but it, I think it's very consistent with the direction that Ellis is trying to take the book, this sort of dark um, government surveillance kind of thriller. Um, so I, I do think it's, again, Ellis asserting that this is his now um, and, again, creating the, this future trajectory for his story. So, yeah, to me, it's just it's a tool in the toolbox in the X-Men franchise, um, and it's, it's his turn with it, basically. Oh, that's a really interesting take on it. Yeah, because it's all about the British Secret Service, like industrial apparatus in this particular issue and how they partner with the Sentinels, right? Which is an interesting twist on it, I find. And like, again, it fits with situating Pete, you know, the former Black Air operative as the point of resistance to that, right? Yeah, another centering of the author insert character as we've been yes, talking yes. about for the last few podcasts. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I had questions about the karma thing because there was some suggestion that Pete's kind of what would be a kind way of saying that not fully aware of some things like he's sort of got some like memory issues or stuff. And then we have karma violently possessing Brian and there's some mystery of what happened to karma. So I wasn't really sure if there was like an implication that karma is controlling Pete and there wasn't hmm. enough there to figure that out. So okay, there was another piece of that that I was wasn't sure about but okay that's interesting and i don't really know why karma is just thrown into this that was sort of a big question i had especially because we're not going to come back to this so it's just a one-off thing but anyway she's a character no one was using and like yeah. I, I mean i really think a lot of this is this is a character that i said this a couple of episodes ago ellis is not in in 1996 ellis is not the warren ellis of 1998 
1998, Ellis can write blank checks. 1996, Ellis is on his first real gig. So Karma is a recognizable character from the New Mutants that no one will be mad if, if he does something because no one's going to go, but we're doing something important with Days of the Future Past and Karma because she just wasn't really that important to the universe at, that, at the point that this was written. Yeah, and, and this isn't Sean at all. We should point out, no. like, like, this is this no. is not who Karma is as a character. She hates using her powers. She doesn't want yeah. to be a superhero, and she suffered a lot of trauma as a result of war. So yeah. having her put in this role is actually, I think, kind of vulgar and offensive, unless you're going to do something with that and reveal that she's yeah. got, like, the Shadow King on board or something like that. Yeah, I think it's same as Tangerine. I think it's a name that's recognizable that yeah. um, that it's... <sighs> When Bendis did his um, Avengers assembled arc, he said that he wanted to give the story stakes, so he killed Hawkeye because Hawkeye was a character that he could the kill and no possible. one would care. And, yeah, and he, well, yeah, he was like he could, he, he admits it. He <laughs> said he's like I just needed to kick it off, so I killed Hawkeye in a really stupid way because he was the one I didn't have to get permission to kill. And then he's like, if the story had been written two years later, there would have been a Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I would have been fired trying to kill Hawkeye he was like he, he's, he's like it's just he chose from characters that no one was going to miss at the time and that's and, right. and that's how he made the decision and I have I have a lot of qualms business but I understand what he's saying there he's basically saying with editorial control there's some things you have to ask for permission for and some things you can just do and I think karma and tangerine are things you can just do in 1996. Right. Quibble with it a little bit in that I do think it's intentional because we have sort of like radical inversions of certain characters here. And I do mm -hmm. think the comic is aware of this as a radical inversion of Karma, the same oh, way yeah, as yeah. a radical inversion of Megan. So yeah, I, I, agree. I don't think that that's unconscious, but at the same time, there's just not enough here for it to be a sensitive portrayal of anything. So, you mm -hmm. know, I agree with that as well. Let's, let's uh, move to some final thoughts because I'm sure we all have additional moments or questions perhaps about this issue that we can sort of air in closing uh, let's start with you mav did you have a, a final thought something you want to circle back sure. to or something you want to bring up that we haven't talked about yeah well we talked about it briefly in our in during the um during the recap the summary um in order to get the characters that we care about off the board they're just kind of on away with on paper Age and it's just sort of like a it's just sort of like a in Peter and and Kitty left and got married and then died but like the story doesn't tell us that and then it's like Amanda died at the hands of her mother and then Kurt returned to America and died in his mother's hand and I took that immediately to be Mystique which I didn't like because I'm like because my thought was this makes no sense given where the characters of Mystique and Kurt were in 1996. Arguably, you could do something with them today, but it, it would, it, but then there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, sort of pathos to deal with. There's a, there's a lot of baggage to like sort of dig through if you're going to say, and then she died, he died with her holding his hand. But then when you, when you made your point in the summary where you were like, hey, you know, you read it as being uh, Margley. I was like, to me, I was like, that makes more sense because Margaret loves Kurt. Even if, like, she loves Amanda too. And even if she was forced to kill Amanda, I can see a story which is interesting in my head of Kurt is dying for whatever reason, but his mother, his surrogate mother, 
comes to him and is like, I am going to be there for you as you die, my son. And like that, I was like, that could be interesting. And I wasn't able to see that with Mystique, which is why since I read it as Mystique, I was just like, that doesn't make any sense. To me, it's like, oh, I kind of like it better if it's Margali both times. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of depth to it if it's Margali because it's like, well, she killed Amanda, but then Kurt is still holding her hand at the end. And it's like, whoa, that's dark. <laughs> but yeah, at the yeah. same time, I'm like, it's dark in a way that actually is in character for the yes. relationship between those three people so i was yes. like no that makes sense but that's exactly where <laughs> that's, that's exactly where i was i was like i was like oh and 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 and, and it was burke in a way that made me go oh my god that's awful i want to hear the story i want to hear how mm -hmm. this went down that like because because there are i can think of a dozen situations some selfish and some misguidedly altruistic where i can see where margalee felt that she had to kill amanda I can think of a million ways where in Margoli logic, because of the winding way, I have to sacrifice my daughter. And you know, and it might just be for more power for herself. And it might be because the winding way and future and saving the cosmos, like I could see her justifying it in a million ways. And then that driving a schism between her and Kurt. And then Kurt is, let's say cancer, let's say hit by a bus, let's say a supervillain, it doesn't matter. But sometime later, Kurt is at the end of his days and Margley, who he hasn't talked to in, in two years, comes comes back. And then they have to have this moment where she's like, I know, I know, but I'm here for you, son. And they hold hands. Like, I could see that as a story and I want to read that. It's not there, but I but I just want to know what was going on. And it makes me sad that I, when I realized, no, he probably means a mistake. <laughs> well, me I mean, Ellis was, Ellis is responsible for writing arguably the best treatment of the Kurt Mystique relationship in Excalibur, mm -hmm. part of Age of Apocalypse. So it makes Not sense. Not familiar with that it. Never heard no, of it. No, I've never heard of it either. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard legends of, of this other story. They have a relationship. So it could be that he's playing off of his imaginary continuity there. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's just really, I just did not read it as Mystique at all. I'm just like, when has Kurt ever referred to Mystique as his mother? Right. <laughs> so I was like, what? Right. Anyway, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. But that was so funny that I just misread it. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad that we returned to it. Um, Andrew, did you have a final thought? Something you want to circ circle back to or bring up? Um, just that I thought there was a lot of like, like huge potential here for a variety of reasons like i would love a story about a you know fully aged rain sinclair and, and what she becomes as an adult and who she becomes as an adult and they start to tell that story and then they just stop i would also love a story recentering brian's heroism and its connection to the british nationalism aspect so the idea of like you know captain britain holding out against the sentinels that could be a really cool story as well and we don't get that and i i think Maybe the most odd one is like future dystopia based on ongoing political trajectory. That's something Warren Ellis should be really good at writing. And and he, he's done that later on. And it was later. A yeah, he's practicing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, <laughs> ah, this is his wheelhouse. And I feel like it's it's hard to watch that falter as well. So again, there, there was a lot of things that could have gone really, really good with this story. So it, it's a little more disappointing in that light for me. Yeah, I did find the centering, the ostensible centering of Rain's perspective here interesting. It's a very interesting character to choose for this story, although, yeah, as you're saying, maybe doesn't really play out the way that we would want it to. My final thought was just going to be, I really like the in the past team picture that Casey Jones does, the one before everything goes to shit, but uh, we're, you know, 
everybody is posed as their as their happy selves circa 1996 Excalibur and I particularly am fond of the detail where like the caption specifically says that Kurt Wagner is the leader of Excalibur and he's like behind Amanda hugging her with his head over her shoulder and I don't know I I get that this is my perspective as a person who cares too much about Kurt Wagner but I liked this as a little character detail of him that here he is, this like male character who's situated as the leader of this team, and he's drawn as this kind of small, happy, cute guy who's like <laughs> not hiding behind his girlfriend, but certainly, you know, posed with her in a somewhat submissive way, a very cute way at the very least. And I found that combination of elements really interesting and quite appealing in terms of how Kurt's masculinity represents differently, and I thought it was a good way to sort of visually signpost that without, you know, mm -hmm. giving us a whole speech about it. It was like an instance of the picture telling us a lot about who Kurt is as a character within the context of that team, I guess. It's sort of a little moment, little element of that image that I've actually thought about clearly way too much, but I really like it a lot. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Drew, coming back to you for some final thoughts, is there anything in closing that you would like to circle back to, or did you have more burning questions about this comic that we can <laughs> resolve for you take it in whatever direction you would like sure well i have i have two which the first one is a question that is i'm sure a dumb question but the guy pointing a gun to captain britain's head at the end who is this yeah there's a guy with oh, cool sunglasses yeah. and a big gun blonde hair because the caption says they were fighting him all along, which in context could mean Doug Locke, but it could also mean this blonde guy who just showed up. And I, because I didn't know who he was, I assume he's like a black air or uh, yeah. rep, but yeah, I had no got, idea. He's got the black air symbol on his clothes, but that okay. is an unfortunate placement of caption. <laughs> it's like he's revealed as the big bad and it's just some blonde guy with 90s wraparound shades. <laughs> yeah, it, it confused <laughs> the noob. The only other thing I wanted to do was make a joke about Rain being a Facebook content moderator. Because uh, this is such a miserable job that people have that they have to look at the ugliest stuff on Facebook, uh, like hate speech, murder, just like the worst kinds of stuff. And that's essentially what she's doing, but yeah. unpaid. So even worse. Uh, but, you know, that would make anybody a demolished woman. I'm sure many other shows have done this, but there was definitely an episode of Lucifer in which somebody's job was being a content moderator for a sock puppet of Facebook. And it did make them go crazy. I'm so, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So another way that this issue is shockingly prescient in mm. predicting <laughs> Facebook content moderation and the psychological toll and punk haircuts it causes on people. It, it did remind me of that as well, Drew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. My final thing is that I am going to do a Swordstrokes letters page letter. We haven't done one for a while. This one is from Krista Schneiderite um, from Clinton Township, Missouri, I believe. Uh, I'm not going to do the whole letter because it's long, but I am going to do part of it because um, it catches us back up with some past discussions that we've had about Pete Wisdom. So dear Swordstrokes, thank you, thank you, thank you for the last page of Excalibur number 90. As you'll recall, that is the page where Pete Wisdom and Kitty Pride kiss aboard the shuttle. I've been waiting for a month for that kiss. I must admit, however, that at first I did not like Pete Wisdom, as in at all. As a matter of fact, I thought he was a complete jerk when he first showed up in number 86. I liked the way Kitty handled him right off the bat. She didn't let him get under her skin. By 87, I wasn't quite sure if I had liked Pete, but by the time the Dream Nails trilogy started, I was intrigued. Hooked. I had to find out what would happen next. Besides, Pete was becoming a much more likable guy. I could tell something was starting to blossom between him and Kitty. 
I'm all for it because poor Kitty really loved Pedor, as in Rasputin. Then he dumped her, broke her heart several times, and abandoned her. Kitty deserves better than that. The more I saw of Kitty and Pete together, the more I liked the idea of it. You can't imagine how tickled I was when he you can't imagine how ticked I was when they came so close to that kiss in number 89, so I was happy when it finally happened in number 90. I'm glad Kitty finally found someone to love who actually cares about her too. She deserves to be happy after everything that's happened to her, so please keep Pete on the team as a member of Excalibur and don't make him leave her the way Piotr did. Boo hiss. I did find that letter interesting because I like spotlighting the fact that Pete Wisdom was a very popular character with the female identified readers of 1995-1996 and this letter is yet more evidence of that fact. Like it or not, people, yeah. the ladies enjoyed Pete Wisdom, clearly. Or at least the people who are choosing letters. Yeah, I know, the people, <laughs> or at least the ladies who are chosen to be published in the book by, right. who knows, perhaps Warren Ellis himself, <laughs> really <laughs> like Pete Wisdom. <laughs> Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin? I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddle in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Drew, thank you so profusely for joining us to reckon with all of these leather jackets and undercuts. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of all of your awesome exploits. If you would like folks to find you online, whereabouts can they find you? And what work or projects, past or present or future, would you like people to be looking out for? Uh, well, in terms of people finding me online, I'd prefer that they not. Uh, so I'm not going <laughs> to give any fine. social media. I'm trying to be off of social media to the biggest extent possible so that's it i would say uh look out for my article about into the spider-verse in the summer issue of jcms uh, i'm really proud of that very excited for it to finally be in the world and uh small screen supers the book that uh you and i are putting together anna where people could follow its progress presumably via your twitter account yes yes i will be promoting <laughs> that book in in due course as it as it goes along definitely gonna have at least some x-men content in that book but you know it's academic publishing, so look out for that in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll be able to pay way too much for it, like three years from now. <laughs> three years ambitiously. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much again, Drew. I love this conversation so much. Me too. My greatest pleasure. Next, we will be discussing the debut of a new regular penciler, the late great Carlos Pacheco in Excalibur number 95, Amplified Heart, co-starring X-Men. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Plus, there's a possibility we may finally resolve our feud with the bad boys over at Battle of the Atom, but no promises. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to 
check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another tense yet present discussion. Thank you, Drew, for surviving the end of the world with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. So much, everyone. That's the end.